Hello and welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm talking with Graham Hancock. Graham is the author of multiple titles including the brand new Magicians of the Gods and the major international bestsellers The Sign and the Seal, Heaven's Mirror and Fingerprints of the Gods which was described as one of the intellectual landmarks of the decade. His books have sold more than 5 million copies worldwide and have been translated into 27 languages and his public lectures, radio and TV appearances including two major TV series Quest for the Lost Civilization and The Flooded Kingdoms of the Ice Age have put his ideas before audiences of tens of millions of people and he's become recognised as an unconventional thinker who raises controversial questions about topics such as humanity's past, spirituality and psychedelics. Graham, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's such an honour. Good to be with you, Duncan. A pleasure. Um, now, in your brand new book, I mean, I think you said that in Fingerprints of the Gods, like a lot of these ideas which were discussed didn't, you know, were proposed, but they didn't have the hard scientific backing, uh, which has actually just because the science wasn't there. But in the last 20 years, especially in the last seven, I think, there's been un- unbelievable scientific discoveries. And one amazing site, which I'd love to jump into, is this site which is discovered in Turkey, Gebekli Tepe. And uh, I think you described it as Stonehenge times 50. And yeah. we got these huge T-shaped pa- pillars, 20 yeah. tons. But the really, really interesting thing which jumped out was it's been dated at 11,600. But history says... Our ancestors at that time were meant to be primitive hunter-gatherers. Like, we're incapable of these large-scale monumental architecture. Yeah. This, this, this changes absolutely everything, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and, and this is why I've, I've written Magicians of the Gods, because there have been uh, a series of developments in the research into this area which literally do uh, change, change everything. So to address your first point, you're right. Uh, in uh, Fingerprints of the Gods, which was published in 1995, 20 years ago, uh, what I uh, proposed was that there had been a gigantic global cataclysm between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. I was very specific about that window, between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago, uh, and that um, it had caused the obliteration uh, of an advanced civilization that is only now remembered in myths and traditions, and which historians and archaeologists uh, do not believe uh, ever existed. When I looked into this issue of a global cataclysm, it was evident uh, from from many different lines of inquiry that something really bad had happened on the earth between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. But when I wrote Fingerprints of the Gods, I couldn't be certain what that really bad thing was. Um, And I I looked into a number of possibilities relating to pole shift and and most closely uh, into a mechanism called earth crust displacement, which was initially put forward uh, by a historian of science named Charles Hapgood uh, many, many years ago, and then was picked up and refined by Rand and Rose Flemath in Canada uh, in their book, When When the Sky Fell. And this is a very interesting proposition, really, the suggestion that the whole outer crust of the earth can slip in one piece around the mantle or the core of the earth. Um, and and um, it, it certainly would explain all the cataclysmic effects that were seen. Now, I'm actually still very interested in the earth crust displacement theory. 
Um, but what has happened in the last 20 years is that we now have absolutely incontrovertible scientific evidence for what that cataclysm was between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. And in the new book, I haven't gone into the far reaches of the Earth crust displacement theory. I'm concentrating on the new scientific evidence, and that concerns a comet impact with the Earth. Interestingly, I don't go into this in the book, but I do have an article up on my website about it, actually put there in 2006 uh, by a researcher called Flavio Barbiero, which, which um, suggests that the two mechanisms may not be incompatible, that uh, a large object striking the Earth at an oblique angle might cause sufficient stress to the crust to set the crust in motion. Um, but what I've done in the new book is to concentrate entirely on the areas that are now uh, very much universally accepted by science rather than um, repeat again more controversial arguments <laughs> that I explored in Fingerprints of the Gods. I, I'm, I'm trying to get my central point across, which is that we lost something from the human story between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago. And it's just intriguing to me since I proposed a global cataclysm between 13,000 and 12,000 years ago in 1995, that since 2007, a major group of scientists, more than 30 of them, working all around the world at prestigious scientific institutions, have been presenting piece by piece the evidence for precisely such a global cataclysm. And to cut a long story short, what, they're, what they've proved uh, their ride has not been an easy one. They've been peer-reviewed. They've been subject to criticisms and questioning by their scientific colleagues. But every time this has happened, they have simply strengthened their case by refuting the criticism with new evidence and adding further evidence. The latest paper was just published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences uh, in July 2015. Um, and and uh, cut a long story short, what they're saying is that it is a long story. <laughs> what they're saying <laughs> 12, is that, a, years yes, that, a, that a, a giant comet with a diameter of about 200 kilometers uh, was drawn into the inner solar system or thrown into the inner solar system about 20,000 years ago. And that that very large comet uh, then went into an orbit around the sun that crossed the orbit of the Earth twice a year. Initially, there was no problem. But like other comets that we know about, for example, Shoemaker-Levy 9 that hit Jupiter in 1994, which broke up into multiple fragments before impacting on the planet Jupiter, uh, the evidence is that this giant comet also broke up into multiple fragments affected by the gravity of the Earth. And then 12,800 years ago, eight, at least eight of those fragments, some of which were as much as a mile in diameter, at least eight of those fragments hit the earth with the epicenter of the impacts being on what was then the North American ice cap uh, with cataclysmic effects. Because when objects a mile wide coming in at 70,000 miles an hour uh, hit ice that is two miles deep. Remember, this is the Ice Age. The northern half of North America was covered with ice two miles deep. When that happens, a huge amount of kinetic energy and heat mm -hmm. is unleashed. And basically, you have dramatic cataclysmic melting of enormous areas of the North American ice cap, which flood the land immediately south of them. And part of the book is an investigation of the flood features on that landscape, 
uh, across the edge of the former ice cap um, and also pour freezing water into the oceans, which disrupt the Gulf Stream, radically affect global circulation and cause a plunge in temperatures. And that's what you witnessed 12,800 years ago, a plunge in temperatures accompanied by massive wide scale flooding and extinction of animals. We now know the reason for this. Uh, it was a comet impact, uh, fragments of a giant comet. I, I have to move quickly through this, but it, the evidence suggests that some 1,200 years later, 11,600 years ago, the Earth had further encounters with the fragments of this comet. So we are looking at a sustained episode of cataclysm, an extinction-level event that unfolded between 12,800 and 11,600 years ago. And interestingly, 11,600 years ago is the date that Plato gives us for the submergence of the lost civilization of Atlantis. He said that happened 9,000 years before the time of Solon, and the Greek lawmaker Solon lived in 600 BC. So Plato was saying 9,600 BC, which is 11,600 years ago, which is a date that coincides exactly with the scientific evidence, because just as the 12,800 years ago event was accompanied by massive global flooding and destabilization, so also was the 11,600 years ago event. And we've had further encounters with fragments of this comet since then, certainly in the Bronze Age, and the possibility remains that we may have to deal with further encounters with bits of it uh, in the future. So this is, the, <laughs> this is the, the, the scientific evidence. A lot of this evidence has not been put before the general public before. It's been confined to the rarefied atmosphere of prestigious scientific journals. And one of the things I've tried to do in Magicians of the Gods is to compress and summarize that information, footnote all of the references if people want to follow it up, so that, so that it's understood we have a powerful scientific case here, and that scientific case changes everything because, you know, historians and archaeologists have constructed their model of the origins of civilization without taking into account a massive extinction-level event that occurred just in the backyard of what we think of as history. It's not their fault. This information is new. It's only been out there since 2007, but historians and archaeologists need now to scramble to take this evidence into account. And that's what I've done in Magicians of the Gods. I've taken the evidence into account and I've considered its implications for ideas, our ideas of the origins of civilization. And the answer is it massively reinforces the case for a lost civilization, especially <laughs> when combined with the evidence from newly discovered archaeological sites like Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, which is, as you said in the introduction, 11,600 years old. It fits in exactly with that second cataclysm. It's very sophisticated. It's advanced, a megalithic site, much, much larger than Stonehenge with precise astronomical alignments. It looks to me like the work of the survivors of a lost civilization who went and settled amongst hunter-gatherers and tried to transfer their technology to them because agriculture starts in the same area of Turkey at the same moment that the megalithic site of Gobekli Tepe is first created and then deliberately buried, not to be found for more than 10,000 years, reopened only in the late 1990s. And yeah, that, the ice thing is interesting because one of the big um, question marks about the whole comet argument was if this huge comet hit the Earth, then where on Earth's the crater? But the fact that, you, like you said, it was covered in ice, then obviously it hit the, the ice and then the ice disappeared. So exactly. that, was, that was a it, fascinating bit. This, these, are, these are transient craters. 
that are formed in ice that is two miles deep. And when the ice melts away, very little evidence of the crater is left. Actually, in the last year or so, shock effects that were, in, that were on the ground under the ice cap have been identified. We have now uh, about four major potential craters that have been identified. But it's important to be clear that the scientific evidence up till now, excluding those traces of craters that were left after the impact had been absorbed by the ice cap, that the bulk of the evidence up to now is what are called impact proxies. Again, you have to consider the tremendous heat and kinetic energy of these objects coming in and hitting the Earth. And when they do, they create very definite, very recognizable side effects. Those include nanodiamonds, diamonds that can only be seen under a, a microscope formed in the shock and heat, melt glass, which is virtually identical to the melt glass that you get in nuclear explosions, uh, evidence of temperatures in excess of 2,200 degrees centigrade, that's beyond the boiling point of quartz, um, uh, carbon spherules. There are very specific proxies of a cosmic impact, and they are distributed across more than 50 million square miles of the Earth's surface. And the latest scientific paper published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in July 2015 makes clear, it's a Bayesian chronological analysis, it makes clear that this was all one single event that unfolded literally in a single afternoon. It was not spread out over hundreds of years. It wasn't slow and polite and gradual. It was instant, massive, worldwide. And there's only one explanation for that, and that is the impact of a large object uh, coming in from the solar system. And that is uh, the comet. The one thing which I like about, you know, obviously you've got all like this, we've got the facts and the science, but about a lot of your work, you are proposing ideas for discussion, for further consideration. You're not claiming to be in possession of some indisputable facts. Do, no, do, you, do you feel I never that? Do. I, I never do. I mean, my critics in the world of archaeology imagine that I do. Yeah. Uh, because there is a preformed narrative I've discovered about me and about my work, which, which mainstream archaeologists and historians and their friends in the media just buy into wholesale without actually ever needing to talk to me yeah. or to read my books. Um, and, and um, you, you know, the, the suggestion is that I'm, you, you know, that I'm saying this is definitely how it was. And that, I never do that. What, yeah. I'm, what I'm saying is that there are anomalies, there are puzzles, there are issues in our past that are, that are unexplained. And so far, we've only been given one side of the story. And that's the side of the story uh, preferred by those uh, who regard themselves effectively as being in control of our past, the experts who uh, mediate between us and our past and, 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 and transmit to us their knowledge of our past. Those are the historians and archaeologists. Well, good for them. And they do some fantastic work, which I highly respect. But there is room for another point of view, especially when it comes to something so important as the origins of human civilization. Mm. Uh, and especially when we discover that we have an extinction level event right in the basement of what historians and archaeologists say is the beginning of history. Uh, this is a real problem and it has to be it has to be taken into account. I'm not saying that I'm 100 percent right or even 50 percent right. I'm saying that here is an area we need to explore and here is what's known about it right now. And it looks like it changes everything. Yeah. about how we view our past. Let's consider it. That's Absolutely. all I'm saying. Let's consider this. Let's take this into account. Do you, do you feel that the second we start holding on to sort of facts and absolute truths, that's when we become immediately much more close-minded just to... Well, I think, that, I think there's a point where 
we, any investigator of any aspect of reality um, is looking into it hopefully with a rational mind and um, uh, investigative tools and certain material begins to come out and then they start to formulate a theory about what all that material might mean. What happens is a kind of alchemy is that over a period of time the theory about what all those bits of evidence might mean becomes mistaken for a fact. Uh, people start to react to it as though it is a fact, as though it is real, as though it is something other than a theory. And that, at that point, it's, it's approaching the level of a religious belief, because here is actually uh, simply uh, a speculation about the nature of our past, but it's being dressed up and presented as though it's absolutely true. Uh, and there could be no alternative explanation. And it becomes a reference frame, or if you like, a pair of spectacles through which the past is viewed. And it becomes very difficult to see anything that contradicts that. Um, and it's referred to as, sociologists know this, it's called cognitive dissonance. That, that if you are presented with um, ideas and evidence that utterly contradict deeply held and cherished views of your own, you're going to reject that ideas and evidence, inevitably, because it's so uncomfortable for you to have to, to have to accept it. And this is true of everybody. Everybody suffers from cognitive dissonance regarding their core ideas. But it becomes a serious problem when an entire profession that has been given sole responsibility for interpreting our past to us is suffering from cognitive dissonance and will not consider any alternative than the model, the theory that they have been working with for the last hundred years or so. Mm. But it's just a theory. It's not facts. It's a theory built on bits and pieces of evidence. But the further back you go into the past, the thinner the evidence becomes and the more like a fairy tale it becomes. And that's what I would say we're looking at with mainstream history and archaeology. Great work for the last 9,000 years, but everything before that's pretty much a fairy tale. <laughs> How important do you feel curiosity is? Because not just in your life, but for everyone to adopt a more childlike curiosity just to the world around them. Duncan, I think it's really important. I think, I think that's the, you know, the, one of the fundamental human characteristics that we need to nourish and nurture is, is curiosity. And curiosity involves not accepting everything we're told, including by me, not accepting everything we're told, but looking for ourselves. And if I've done anything useful, I hope it's to provide some tools to those who are curious about our past to do their own work. Yeah. It was a, uh... I really enjoyed it. I was hearing, um, it, was, it was a year or two back, but I was listening to an interview and it was actually, you're talking about um, describing hallucinogens. Yes. And actually the way, one of the ways you actually used a sort of a metaphor was like a hallucinogen um, applying a lens to the brain yes. to enable us to see more of reality than we can with our everyday senses, like a telescope or a microscope just allows us to see more of reality than we can with our, you know, our normal yeah, senses. Yeah, it's a very simple analogy and it makes, you know, it makes the, the, what to me is a, is a central point, that at the moment we have another unexamined theory or reference frame regarding visionary experiences that human beings have and that unexamined theory or reference frame uh, is that these visions are just quote-unquote hallucinations just uh, our brain on drugs, if you like, or our brain misfunctioning, uh, somehow manufacturing and producing these, these weird experiences. But that's only a reference frame. That isn't a fact. That is based on an idea about the role of the brain in consciousness. But another possibility exists, and that is that the brain is more of a transceiver 
or a re receiver of consciousness. And what these powerful substances may be doing is resetting the receiver wavelength of the brain and allowing us to gain access to other levels of reality, normally invisible to our senses. So once again, it's a different aspect of my work. I'm very interested in, in visionary experiences and their role in the origins of human culture. And I wrote a book about that published in 2005 called Supernatural. But what's in common between Supernatural and the new book, Magicians of the Gods, is that I am challenging an established reference frame. I am saying there are bits and pieces of evidence that do not fit into that reference frame. And if we fail to take them into account, then we're unnecessarily confining ourselves into a narrow, narrow tunnel of inquiry rather than opening out into all the possibilities that await us. Mm. You said that consciousness is the greatest mystery of science. It's perhaps the scientific mystery that we most urgently need to solve. Why do you feel that? Well, we don't understand what consciousness is. I mean, any scientist who says they understand what consciousness is, that they've absolutely got it nailed, um, <laughs> is uh, not speaking the truth because, because nobody does under, understand it. We understand that the brain is connected with consciousness in some way, but exactly the nature of that connection remains to be revealed. I mean, we have this few pounds of sort of unpleasant jelly inside the bony container of our skulls. Um, and certainly our skulls and that unpleasant jelly are material things. They're objects. They, they, you can weigh them. You can, you can measure them. You can assay them. They're, they're physical objects. So how those physical objects, that physical object that we call our brain, how it allows us, where are we? Are we some little homunculus in the back of our head watching a picture being projected through our eyes? Allows us to have experiences which include intangible issues like love, our reaction to a beautiful sunset or a symphony, how, how those, that physical object transmutes this into conscious experience is utterly unknown at the moment. It's a, huge, it's a huge mystery, and it's a mystery that touches upon the nature of reality itself and what it is that we're living in. How do we know that this is real or that this is the only real? This is the mistake, I think, that, that another branch of mainstream science, in this case not historians and archaeologists, but uh, material scientists who m m seek to reduce everything to a material substrate. This is, this is where I think they're missing a trick, actually. Materialist science relating to consciousness simply says that our consciousness is an accidental byproduct of brain activity, that it's a kind of illusion. It, 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 and there's nothing real to it. It's just... It, we needed these big brains in order to compete effectively in the Darwinian jungle. Yeah. But, and, and as an accidental byproduct of evolving these big brains, we got this thing that we call consciousness that we don't understand. And there's nothing more to it than that. That's the view of materialist science. You know, it's all, it can all be reduced to matter. And that's why I use the telescope analogy. Because yes, physical changes do take place inside the brain when we're having visionary experiences. But can those experiences be reduced to the physical changes inside the brain? I'm not sure. Same with a telescope. When we look at a star... We have to focus the telescope. When we focus the telescope, physical changes take place inside the barrel of the telescope. The star comes into view. But we'd be wrong to say that the star is just the physical changes inside the barrel of the telescope. And I think it's the same kind of mistake that we're making about the brain. We need to not be so addicted to our reference frames. We need to be open to contrary evidence and explore it and see where it leads us and see where it goes. And that's what I try to do in, in, in my books as a researcher and a writer.
talking to shamans when you spent some time you just mentioned then supernatural but you've you spent a lot of time um talking and being you know going back and forth to um the amazon and you've talked to them a lot about the sickness of the west and Mm. their answer has been pretty consistent and simple that we've we've severed our connection with spirit that's right um and unless we reconnect with spirit and do so soon, I think you said the, the whole house of cards is going to fall down uh, uh, you know, above that's our head. Cer- that's certainly the view uh, of people in the Amazon. Yeah. We should remember that, that the, the people in the Amazon are not unconnected from the outside world. They know what's going on in the outside world. They have the internet in Iquitos, <laughs> which is a city in the heart of the Amazon. Um, and, and they don't like what they see. They don't, they don't, they don't like this looming aura of... of disaster and horror that is that is constantly being spread by by those who run the world uh they don't they don't like that at all and they see a problem and and the problem they see with this huge industrial technological complex that we call the west but that of course includes japan and china and and uh, and all rapidly industrializing and technologically based societies the problem they see is that these societies have indeed severed their connection with spirit that we've come to regard spirit that aspect of ourselves that can't be weighed and measured and counted we've come to regard that as an illusion because we reduce everything to matter uh, and and this is the biggest mistake that a society could possibly make uh, we do need to reconnect with spirit and my view this is not said by the, the shamans but my my view is that the three mainstream monotheistic faiths christianity judaism and islam no are no longer fit for purpose they are part of the problem in the world today rather than part of the solution uh, we need to go back to a more ancient form of spirituality but using our modern techniques and tools i'm not a, i'm not a luddite i'm not saying we should abandon modern technological advance i'm saying we should we should mitigate it with a willingness to embrace spirit and shamanism provides an excellent model for that because that's about direct contact with the realms beyond. Um, and I think what we need to do in the West is to develop our, or redevelop because we've lost our shamanistic roots. We need to redevelop learning, for example, from the peoples of the Amazon or the peoples of the Kalahari Desert. We need to develop our own form of shamanism that works in a highly complex technological urban setting. Yeah, and you said that what well, you didn't mention this, but one of their remedies that they propose is ayahuasca as actually well yes that's that's the other that's why we have this reverse missionary activity going on yeah. you know it used to be people from i don't know britain or wherever going off and bringing the quote unquote good news which was almost always bad news about christianity to you know to indigenous peoples <laughs> in different parts of the world Surprised. well now it's the other way now we have the shamans of the amazon who are traveling to the west bringing the medicine ayahuasca the vine of souls, this powerful visionary brew, uh, extraordinary visionary brew, which I wrote about at length in my book, uh, Supernatural, I've talked about quite a bit. They are bringing ayahuasca to the West, to the technological societies, because they feel we desperately need it, and that actually this may be the only way to save the world from the hunger, the the rapaciousness, the, the cruelty, the absolute lack of ethics and morals of technological societies, uh, which is this short-term pursuit of of immediate profits, which are literally bringing our societies to the edge of collapse for for no useful gain, Um, that all of this mindset 
needs to be changed. This state of consciousness that is dominating the West at the moment needs to be changed. Shamans know that, and they, they are convinced that ayahuasca is the way to do it. And that's why you can drink ayahuasca in any major industrial technological city in the world today. It's, it's, all, it's there. It's come out from the jungle. It's been brought out by shamans as an urgent remedy for the sickness of the technological societies. Mm. And one thing that was, I think, consistent i mean everyone has completely different experiences but there's a sort of consistency which everyone who drinks it sooner or later has a sort of universal message do they get it's, it's extraordinary it's one of the mysteries of ayahuasca it's why more cross-cultural research needs to be done because there there are certain aspects of the ayahuasca experience that crop up again and again all over the world, regardless of the setting, whether it's a big city or the middle of a jungle, whether, whether the people have compared notes or not, whether they knew anything about ayahuasca before they drank it or not. All of this has, has been done, and there are these astonishing transpersonal connections, um, as though all of us are peering into the same usually invisible uh, pa parallel realm. Um, this, is the, this, is, this is what's really remarkable about about ayahuasca and it's why it's why i feel that much more detailed research needs to be done into the amazonian brew itself in which the active ingredient although i don't particularly like that phrase because it's much more complicated than that but the active ingredient is dmt dimethyltryptamine the most powerful hallucinogen known to man well um we also have research work that's been done with pure DMT in human volunteers by, for example, Rick Strassman at the University of New Mexico. And I think that we have an amazing tool here for the investigation of the mystery of human consciousness. And we are failing to use it at the moment for purely ideological reasons to do with that absurd uh, evil and malicious project called the war on drugs, which is really a war on people and a war on consciousness. We have to set these ideologies behind us and pursue the healing potential of the psychedelics and beyond that. Yeah. Because some work is being done now on the healing potential of psychedelics, and I welcome that. But beyond that, we need to realize that we have an incredible tool for the investigation of the mystery of consciousness and of the mystery of reality itself, and that structured scientific experiments could be devised involving human volunteers and DMT which might explore the nature of reality further why should we not do that why should we you know we're spending a lot of money exploring outer space let's spend a wee bit exploring inner space as well and let's you know get rid of the ideology and the knee-jerk reactions that have been set in motion by nearly 50 years of mind programming called the war on drugs which has been an unmitigated failure in its entire half century of operation, which has caused untold misery, which has restricted uh, the human family from manifesting and expressing itself in the ways that we the ways that we should. The war on drugs is evil and wicked, and it needs to be ended right now. One such healing uh, was the the amazing results at uh, Takiwasi Clinic in Peru. Um, and that's you know, right. So, what, I mean, Takiwasi Clinic in Peru, Dr. Jacques Mabit uh, for a while, Gabor Mate in Canada, um, getting drug addicts. I mean, people who are addicted to really harmful drugs like heroin and cocaine, um, getting them off their addictions to those hard drugs with ayahuasca. A month of ayahuasca sessions will produce a revelation that results in well over 50% of the subjects completely giving up their 
hard drug habit, breaking their addiction, no withdrawal symptoms and no return, no return to, to drug addiction. The, uh, astonishing results. Yet Gabor Mate was getting the same results in Canada, but he was stopped. He was banned by the Canadian authorities on the grounds that ayahuasca is a drug. So it seems that the Canadian authority would rather give heroin addicts something horrible like methadone which is itself addictive, would rather give something horrible like methadone than investigate this extraordinary new avenue uh, for, for, for ending drug addiction. Ayahuasca is primarily about, about healing. That's what it's always been about uh, in the Amazon jungle, and that's the role that it continues to play today. So again, we just have to abandon, we have to take off these ideological blinkers and look at things as they actually are, you know. Do you think by having more, uh, by people actually being highlighted to, you know, the amazing healing qualities in, because do a lot of these things, do, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, this is the question, I have no idea. Um, do they start off, you know, in, uh, in the, the medical sense, if they, if they, if, if they sort of tick the box and, you know, are successful in the, in the healing quality, do you think then there's more chance for them to be explored in other realms through like consciousness and... Well, yes, ab- absolutely. This is the, this is the beginning of the change. Um, in the last decade, we have witnessed a resurgence of the study of the therapeutic outcomes of psychedelics, and they have been found to be enormously helpful uh, to people suffering from a, from a range of conditions, from cluster headaches, you know, to, um, near, to anxiety about death in terminal cancer patients. Uh, psilocybin has been shown clinically to radically reduce that anxiety to give the patient a sense that life doesn't end with physical death, that we aren't just physical creatures, that we are this mysterious consciousness incarnated in a physical form. And when the physical form comes to an end, why that's no more serious than discarding an old suit. The consciousness continues. This is the revelation of of, uh, psychedelics. Now, is the revelation real? That's another question. We need to do the research to find that out. But does the revelation itself have therapeutic effects? Yes, absolutely. That has been demonstrated already. So scientists are beginning, and it's risky for them, because anybody who speaks positively about psychedelics in our society is immediately subjected to a massive ideological attack. Uh, for example, from newspapers like the Daily Mail, which have a very in Britain, which have a very wide outreach, uh, they they routinely attack anybody who suggests who suggests, for example, that drugs should be legalized. Look, when I suggest that all drugs should be legalized, I mean it. But that doesn't mean that I think the result of that is going to be that everybody starts taking drugs. Uh, the evidence from societies where drugs have been legalized is that drug use, particularly hard drug use, falls actually. Uh, we have to trust adults to be adults. Uh, we have to give the sovereign adult the right to make decisions about their own body and their own health. We can't devolve that off onto the state. It's a huge, it's a huge mistake to do so. But the present illegal status of all drugs empowers criminal gangs. And I want to disempower those criminal gangs. I don't want our young people to be getting their first drug experience through some bloody criminal who's only interested in taking their money and exploiting them and may not even be selling them what he says he's selling them. I want a rational nurturing society that says these experiences are available if you want to explore them. They can be dangerous. They can be deeply disturbing. Here's our best advice as to how to handle that experience if you want to have it. And never, never, never go for that experience before you're fully mature as an adult, let's say 21. Uh, I think we could much better protect our children from the dangers of these substances under a a regime where they are legal, 
rather than under the present chaotic regime where they're illegal but available everywhere from the worst people on the planet. And then there's the whole scientific issue, the way, that, the way that the war on drugs has just blocked scientific research for nearly 50 years and prizing it open has been incredibly difficult that we're now seeing with the new research into the therapeutic outcomes of psychedelics. So let's take the next step. Now that scientists are satisfied these substances are safe and can be used very positively, let's take the next step and see what they tell us about consciousness. Love it. Graham, what does a fulfilled life mean to you? A fulfilled life uh, means challenge. It means, uh, it means getting out there and taking risks and, and, and doing it, not you know, cowering uh, in, our, in our cave or our, our living room. We have to, we have to, we have to get out there and, and do it. The precious gift of being born in a human body is not meant to be wasted lying on a sofa drinking beer and watching reality TV. Uh, we can do a bit of that, but it shouldn't dominate and overtake our lives. We have this amazing vehicle for exploration of reality. Let's use it. Let's be open to everything. Let's fulfill the amazing gift that we were given rather than our society teaches us now that we're just here to produce and consume that that's really all we are we need to throw that rubbish out of the window with all the other ideologies that no longer serve us uh, and 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 realize we are living a gift we are living a gift on this amazing garden of a planet what is one thing all our listeners can do today that will have a massive positive effect on their lives well, remember that you are in control of, of, of your choices. Uh, we as individuals may feel powerless about society as a whole, but about our own choices day to day, are those choices nurturing and positive or are they negative and unhelpful? That's in our power. That is absolutely within our power. We can always choose to be nurturing and positive rather than cruel and unkind, we can always make that choice if we want to do so. So that's where our power is. It's in the choices we make and those choices define us and ultimately tell the story of our lives. And are there any books or resources which have changed or had a big impact on you? Uh, the book Hamlet's Mill by the historian Stiliana uh, and uh, another historian of science, Hertha von Deschet, Ham Hamlet's Mill, uh, published in the 1960s, um, explores uh, the legacy of what the authors describe as some almost unbelievable ancestor civilization that first dared to describe the world according to weight and number. And uh, it, it really is a fascinating book about the ancient knowledge uh, encoded in myths and traditions. It's a tough read, but it's a life-changing read. Graham, last but not least, how can people stay in touch, find out more, find out about your books and all about your work? Well, is my website, which is www.grahamhancock.com. And then right off there, you can link to my author Facebook page where I'm, I'm very interactive. I, I, I do you know, get a lot out of my author Facebook page. A lot of people post links and suggestions for research that are really helpful to me. And I try to give back by interacting on that page as, as much as I can while also writing books. And I have a Twitter account as well. Everything is there linked off, my, off the front page of my website. Oh, brilliant. Thank you. I just want to say a huge, huge, huge thank you. It's been, I've absolutely loved this. It's been so, Pleasure. so, so really interesting. Really nice to talk to you, Duncan. <laughs> we'll catch up soon down in Bath. Indeed. <laughs> Keep well.